This is the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Tom Church, and I'm here with the Libertarian, Professor Richard Epstein. Richard is the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow here at the Hoover Institution. He's the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU and is a senior lecturer at the University of Chicago. Richard, we're talking on Thursday. Yesterday, a man was arrested near Supreme Court Justice Kavanaugh's home on uh, an attempted murder charge. Um, I'm not going to dignify the gunman with his name, but he was a 26-year-old man who traveled all the way from California uh, to Justice Kavanaugh's home. He found the address online. He was apparently upset over the the leaked draft um, of the of, of the upcoming Dobbs case that might overturn Roe v. Wade. Now, after the leak um, occurred back uh, earlier in the year, the, the Senate actually put together a bill called the Supreme Court Police Parity Act, which would give enhanced security to Supreme Court justices, just like um, other high-ranking uh, executives and, and legislative um, officers. It was passed unanimously in the Senate, yet it hasn't moved at all in the House. Now, I want to know what do you think about the bill as a remedy for people apparently willing to harm Supreme Court justices? Well, I think the word remedy is too strong. What you're trying to do is to change the odds and to do so in the most effective and expeditious way possible. I think that the bill is extremely well-crafted to the extent what it does is it takes a standard set of practices that are used for the president and the vice president and major people inside the government and extends it to Supreme Court justices. I don't regard them as political actors, but too many people do. And I think, in fact, that now that we know that there have been really veiled attacks and threats of one kind or another that could be easily construed, you have to put this in place. The most important thing to remember whenever you're talking about assassination attempts or something of the sort is that you get a speech like Senator Schumer's speech on the uh, steps of Capitol Hill about what we're going to do with these awful abortion decisions. Most people are going to respond to this in a way by being a little bit angry and venting with their spouse when they get back home. Uh, but there's a very large audience, some of which have very large members, including our anonymous California hero. And all it takes is one individual to try to do this. And so what you're always worried about when you're hearing these kinds of extreme speeches is the tail. You're not worried about the median inside the distribution. And therefore, what you have to do is you have to guard to protect against the worst case. You cannot guard as if you're protecting against the shifts on the part of the median voter. And so I think that should surely go through. I think the position that Ms. Pelosi took was as follows. Um, I'm going to tie this to something else. I have no idea what that something else is going to be. And this is a classic situation where this is a bill that everybody wants. And then you tie to it a bill which a majority of the House is not opposed to. If you put that up as a separate item, it will fail. Uh, but if it turns out that the bill on the security is worth 100, and this particular miserable package she puts together is worth a minus 20, if you bundle them together, people she thinks are going to basically vote for the package. Whereas if they were separate, they would vote for the bill and reject the other half of the particular project. So I think what she was trying to to do is to exact something in exchange for all of this stuff. And I think the Republicans at that particular point thought that this was the illegitimate practice. And so they weren't going to go along with her. And if they weren't going to go along with her, she wasn't going to let it to go to the floor. My hope is now that as the issue becomes a more, shall we say, present and urgent one, uh, she will relax from this kind of dreadful position and let the thing go through as a free measure, at which point there will be everybody inside the uh, 
Senate, the House on both sides who will vote in favor of it. And, and that is what we need. And the day that this protection ought to be given is like tomorrow. And I mean, it's actually kind of even tricky. So what do we do with Supreme Court clerks? Um, do we give increased in presence around the courthouse? Do we have people stated there? Do we allow audiences to come in? Do we put barricades up on the outside around the building and so forth? Uh, the unprecedented risk in this particular case then gives rise to a whole series of security choices, which it's beyond the capabilities of any serious academic, quote unquote, uh, to specify what's going on. I mean, I know a little bit about security, uh, but not enough to qualify. But one of the things that's always the case is you have to have two kinds of protections, uh, whether you're talking about people or cameras. One of them has to be visible so that everybody knows that you're interested. So those are visible cameras and people wearing uniform. And then you also have to have a secret component, plain clothesmen, as it were, and secret cameras, uh, because you don't want people to be able to neutralize the uh, visible stuff and make a free clear of it. So they have to be aware of the fact that there's a second layer that's going to deal with it. What you do to put these two layers together or what third layer you might want to add is something I cannot say. Uh, but what I can say with a good deal of confidence is you have to get something in place tomorrow and your alpha version is not going to be good enough to survive over all time. And you need to get a beta version and maybe even a third version after all of that to make sure it goes. But I think in effect, it is sufficiently urgent. It is obviously something that goes to every member of the court. This is not a political kind of decision. And I hope that Ms. Pelosi, whom I think is largely a destructive political force, uh, will understand that this is not her time to exercise the prerogatives which she has as the Speaker of the House. Well, today there's news that people are protesting outside of Justice Kavanaugh's house. This is the day after this gunman was arrested. Um, I know that it's currently illegal to protest outside of a federal judge's house with the intent to influence the judge's decision. But I know that it's it gets a bit complicated because in America, we believe in the right to protest. So two questions, how should people be expressing their disagreement with this upcoming case? And should these people who are protesting outside of, of people's elected officials' houses be prosecuted? Well, my view is unless the law is unconstitutional, they should be prosecuted. Um, there's always the doctrine of prosecutorial discretion, but why is that to be exercised? Generally, it has to do with the question of whether or not the conduct in question is, if you understand what it is, um, in violation of a particular statute. And then there's also some uncertainty as to whether or not you could accumulate the necessary witness and documents and exhibits in order to secure a conviction. I don't think any of the traditional grounds for prosecutorial discretion have any applicability here. I think they should be immediately arrested and they should be charged to the maximum extent of the law. I regard this protest taking place after there was a direct threat as being much more menacing than it was before. It doesn't strike me as being beyond uh, real like expectations that one of those protesters may also be armed like our anonymous person um, and do it. So I think it's that way. And I think that this is a case in which if the attorney general doesn't do it, um, it's his fault. I have to say, I mean, I cannot tell you how dis disappointed I am with the lackluster, lifeless, inert performance of Merrick Garland as an attorney general of the United States. It seems to me he just doesn't rise up to any occasion. And what he has to do is to do this right away. I would also think that at this particular point, correct me if I'm wrong, there are no visible protests 
that have taken place before any of the three liberal judges on the United States Supreme Court, which is all well and good. I hope it never happens to them as it does to anybody else, uh, but you have to move. Then the next question is, is this particular statute constitutional? And there is, as you said, an American tradition about First Amendment, uh, but this tradition has always been, shall we say, with two voices when it comes to pickets, who on the one hand could be the source of information and on the other hand uh, could in fact be a precipitate threat which may in fact burst into a real threat or some actual action uh, just shortly down the line. Uh, how do you deal with it? There was a very bad, in my view, Supreme Court decision having to do with abortion clinics and at issue in that particular case was a Massachusetts statute uh, which says that people who wish to protest at an abortion clinic um, have to stay at least 35 feet from the entrances. And that number was not chosen randomly. 35 feet is far enough away so that you can't grab or kick somebody. And it's close enough so that you could hear. So it's an effort to try to tease out in a relationship so that you get minimal threats on coercion and maximal information. And the Supreme Court in a woolly and silly decision uh, basically says, no, you can't do that. It has to be more facts and circumstances. You know, I wrote a book called Simple Rules for a Complex World. This was a simple rule. It's a complex world. The rule is good. And it's part of the sort of, I think, immature Supreme Court jurisdiction to assume that it's a sign of sophistication uh, to give bad arguments in favor of a complex situation instead of straightforward arguments in favor of a really tenable one. So in my view, if you were to start to say in this particular context, oh, we want facts and circumstances to see who they are and how close they are, I think the answer is no. What you do is you kind of figure out where the property line is and anybody who wants to get within 35 feet of that is going to be arrested. I think so long as people are willing to protest and there's a likelihood of trespass taking place, you have to keep US marshals or local police or somebody out there in order to maintain the order. Um, I think it's actually frightening because if I'm the Kavanaugh's, I do not know whether I'd want to stay in the house under those circumstances. And if I didn't want to stay in the house, I don't know where I would want to go. But I think a Supreme Court justice in hiding is perhaps one of the worst in this images that you could possibly have about the way in which this country runs. So I think, in effect, you really have to start to do that. And if those pictures are accurate, the law is, in my view, constitutional. And it seems to me that the actions call fairly within it as a violation. And at that particular point, I think the attorney general has to delegate people to act. Uh, but as best I can tell, he's keen on prosecuting people involved with 111, but not everybody. Uh, and yet when everything went on in Seattle and in uh, uh, Portland, it turned out many people are left off with a slap on the wrist. There was at least one terrorist, uh, one graduate from NYU Law School, alas, and one from Fordham, uh, who were given very light sentences or plea bargains after they had been punished much more heavily. So what you do is you seem to have a pattern at this particular point in time in which a Democratic official who wanted to be a Supreme Court justice is basically playing the game in which he favors his own party and goes after the opposition. And I think that this is a very dangerous situation. And I think it should be deplored and deplored publicly. Well, I think this arrest is a pretty big deal. I think uh, you, you, you'd probably agree with that. There's never been an assassination of a Supreme Court justice in America. And the New York Times put it on page A20. Um, it was highlighted online that there were 16 stories above it on their website. I think the Washington Post has been similarly criticized for not making it as much of a priority. And I hate to be that guy, but there must be something to this analysis of this happened to justices on the other side of the aisle, would we see different 
levels of coverage from from mainstream media outlets. Yes, what we would see is the toxicity of Donald Trump has now led to miserable behavior like this. This is a man who was so evil that everything he did, and I deplore much of what he's done, particularly around the a January 6th situation, it lasts forever. Everything that the Democrats do just dissipate, and they really don't matter. Uh, so I think, in effect, the New York Times has become a hopelessly hackish organization. It doesn't bother to even try to distinguish between news on the one hand and analytical situations on the other. Um, and I think the most important person in the New York Times is Will Shorts, uh, because he runs the crossword puzzle, right? And he's above reproach, right? Yeah, and I mean, he's not even as good as he used to be, but that's why you subscribe to the New York Times. I think the rest of it has become shameful. Uh, and this is just a classical illustration of it. Here's my question is, are we ever going to get back to a place in America where we trust traditional institutions like like media, like big newspapers that are supposed to run down a story and 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 figure out the truth, at least? Are we in a cyclical trough? I mean, is there any hope? Well, I'm, I'm, I hope it's a cyclical trough. We will see what happens comes the next election. Um, you know, my view about this, most responsible people in America see the bias. And what happens is there may well be a tsunami in most places, not in all places. And you'll see a change in, you know, situations where, uh, you know, San Francisco, which recalled Chase Boudin, um, thank heaven they did that. Uh, they're going to see more and more of these things happening and there'll be a switch in power and maybe the sort of the centrist right-wing Democrat may make a return. Uh, that is, in fact, I think a very sensible part of this country. I don't think people agree with me in a big way on most things, but I think, you know, a Bill Clinton without the slime, um, who sort of says mend it but don't end it, could attract a very large portion. But the uh, center on the Democratic Party is completely hollowed out. And I think much the same thing, though not quite as extreme, has happened on the Republican part. I mean, look, I, I, talking about the newspapers and the media, I mean, you know, you, every Tony who wants to criticize the CDC, you know, the Centers for Disease Controls and so forth, um, they're banned from Twitter and so forth. And you get these incredibly learned pieces and you can't find them. Um, I have never seen any article, for example, dealing with the, the COVID situation and the dangers of vaccine um, in the New York Times or in the Washington Post or the New Yorker. Uh, the only place you could find them are on the Epic Times. And then you look at who they're getting. And these are not political columnists. These are essentially prominent experts inside the field who present these incredibly technical papers having to do with why it is that uh, one or another thing happened. And you know that's a marginal operation at best compared to the sort of mainstream press. Uh, but I have you know, given up on it and given up on the CDC and given up on the FDA. When it comes to everything, there's a drug called fluoroxamine, and there was a nice piece by Alicia Finley saying, why in the world does the FDA want to make sure that this cannot be used to treat COVID, um, when in fact it has extensive off-label use experience, uh, because the government has put forward another drug for which it had one flawed clinical trial, and that is prepared to generate and postpone, you know, promote everywhere throughout the world. Um, the generic drug companies are getting a terrible situation and the branded companies are basically getting away with blue murder. Uh, so, I mean, this may sound as though it's far afield from what's happening.
happening here. But you ask about the news cycle generally. And I, I think what happens in every single area that I follow, and I try to work in a lot of different fields, what I see on the part of the mainstream media and on the Biden White House and on his particular supporters is just a total lack of candor and self-criticism. And I think it's a sort of a national tragedy. The response, you know, the president should have been out there in front of a microphone the moment this thing happened, saying this is a nation of laws. Anybody who wants to violate them, we will do this. We will prosecute this man with the full extent of the law instead of sort of saying, I condemn this. But he doesn't say what he's going to do, given the condemnation. And that's what's absolutely key. And so I think that it's just another terrible type situation. I mean, it, it's a source of anxiety and sadness uh, to watch an administration be so flaccid on a point which has such really very important um, significance and all the rest of this stuff. And let me just sort of put it in perspective. Uh, as you know, and I've said it many times, starting as early as January 2017, I did not want Donald Trump to be the president of the United States. This is not an argument which says that since these guys are terrible, uh, that Trump is somebody who has to be right. What it is an argument which says that if you're comparing relative sins, it turns out that those which are now being practiced on a regular basis have been such uh, that it's the Democrats who have done most of the harm and not the Republicans. It's they who did all the stuff with the Steele dossier and all the rest of that, the Mueller investigation and so forth. For all of his ineptitude, I don't think Donald Trump did any prosecutions. Uh, that would be suspect. Although he said the number of things that are beyond stupid uh, for which he ought to be uh, condemned, but condemnation and criminality are not the same thing. So uh, what you are asking about is in fact a very depressing picture. Uh, we have close to six months to go before the election, a little more than six months before the turnover in the House. I, I do think, I hope that the president gets the message on this stuff and reforms, but I think he is an extremely dogmatic, highly limited individual who essentially cannot engage in a free fall discussion with all sorts of people, but is essentially trapped behind a telex screen of one kind or another, incapable of speaking from the heart to a public which desperately needs some kind of restoration of confidence in our public institutions. You've been listening to the Libertarian Podcast with Richard Epstein. If you'd like to hear more from Richard, you can head over to his weekly column, The Libertarian, published on Defining Ideas at Hoover.org. If you found this conversation thought-provoking, please share it with your friends and rate the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're tuning in. For Richard Epstein, I'm Tom Church. See you next week. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.